arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Antonio Vesiana. Antonio Vesiana. Antonio Vesiana, would you report to the Southland building in Dallas, Texas? Good evening, I'm Robert P. Fitton. Dr. John Newman's work in unraveling the comings and goings of Antonio Vesiana in the early 60s was a game changer for me. As I've said many times in the past, one has to be careful not to plug in the scenarios that bolster and affirm prejudgments. What I had written about as a meeting between Antonio Vesiana and David Atlee Phillips at the Southland Building in Dallas, Texas in September 1963 will not appear on this podcast or in my books. In that scene, Lee Oswald is talking to David Atlee Phillips as Vesiana arrives at the building. Apparently Oswald and Phillips met. This is according to Antonio Vesiana, who identified David Atlee Phillips as Maurice Bishop. I even did a small YouTube segment on this and Phillips's life. It is quite clear that the Oswald-Phillips meeting did not take place. Aha! This was the smoking gun and buttressed a lot of the book that I wrote. This was the smoking gun and added credibility to return to Dallas. However, what emerges with Antonio Vesiana and Army Intelligence opens up a Pandora's box and is probably more intriguing than the alleged Oswald meeting. As you can see with the plot in Chicago and other cities, this assassination had pie-shaped components with people on a need-to-know basis. We begin part five of Return to Dallas in Tampa. Pilatus is still following Patch and Sherry. Here is part five, Return to Dallas by Robert P. Fitton. Drew Field Municipal Airport, Tampa, Florida, 7.14 p.m. At the gate in Tampa, two Cubans with buzz cuts and olive t-shirts pace like cage animals at feeding time. As soon as Patch and Sherry disembarked the aircraft, the men scoffed up the red suitcase and whisked them both to the airport's parking lot. What's the problem? demanded Patch as they all jogged down toward a red and white Ford station wagon parked along the chain link fence. The problem is you, said the man with a silver Rolex watch. Me? They're after you, man said the guy in back of him. Don't you understand that? Who, asked Sherry. The U.S. government. They want you in custody. We need to get out of here right now. He slid the suitcase in the back of the station wagon and slammed the rear door. Patch followed Sherry into the back seat. Before the front door closed, the Rolex man had already started the car. He quickly shifted across the parking lot. Who told you this about the government, asked Patch. When neither man answered, Patch leaned into the front seat. The CIA, the FBI, shut up, clenched his fists and leaned forward. Where the hell are you taking us? I have orders. Patch leaned back and shook his head. After a few turns, the station wagon climbed the freeway ramp. Patch removed his 38 and placed the gun at the driver's temple. The driver glanced at the gun. Oh, come on, idiot. Where are we going? Guy Lopez Field, okay? Two men from Mr. Traficante are there for your protection. Now put your toy away. Why didn't you say that from the beginning? Patch's eyes swung back and forth between the two men. He leaned back with the gun still across his chest. 
We'll be there in a few minutes. Right. Early in the evening, half a dozen light towers rim the little baseball field. More advertisements than wood slats form the outfield fence. The only seating for the ball field consisted of seat rows below the grandstand from the first to the third baseline. With Sherry by his side, Patch carried the red suitcase and jogged with the two men to the red seats under the ball net behind home plate. The Rolex guy did the talking. Mr. R.D. Moynihan? Mr. R.D. Moynihan, Mr. Connors will be out here momentarily. They are associates of Mr. Traficante and Mr. Marcello. Moynihan was a bouncer for the Stiletto Club in New Orleans, so no lip. Where's Traficante? asked Patch. I don't know. Patch again removed the 38, but kept it snug on his lap. A navy blue DeSoto with wide fins stirred the dust behind the fence. The car turned abruptly to the side road along the stadium and came to a stop diagonally in the dirt behind the grandstand. A bald man in a light suit and a middle-aged man with glasses in a dark suit entered the stadium. When they saw Patch and Sherry and the Cubans, the gentleman in the dark suit moved ahead of the other man. You kidding, Kate? Yes, with the piece away, will you, Kincaid? The bald guy waved his hands at the Cubans. Okay, scram! Jesus, everyone is so jumpy. The Cubans shuffled back along the home plate seats and ran back to the station wagon. They told us the government is after us, said Patch. Don't worry about it, said the older man with glasses. How can I not worry about it? Both of you, he said, watching the station wagon round the outside fence. Below the grandstand, we got to make some calls and get some cover before we leave. Patch lifted the suitcase. Where's Mr. Traficante? Miami, said the older guy. Sometimes it's good to stay on the move. Confuse the bastards. Right. They rounded the seats and descended the main aisle. A constricted yellow corridor led behind the grandstands. The payphones hung on the cinder blocks. Patch and Sherry sat at an aluminum picnic table next to the closed concession stands. He set the suitcase on the table. The two men, like robots, threw change into the public phones. Yeah, this is R.D., said the man with the glasses. No shit. You want me to collect the money? Sure. Give me a day, I'll get it. No, Connors said on the other phone. Hoffa hasn't even come down here and he won't. No way. I'll check with Mr. Traffic County. He hung up the phone as Moynihan's next call went through. Connors put more money in the slot. Moynihan banged the cinder block with his left hand. My interest in the Red Robin Club entitles me to know what the take was for yesterday. You just get me that take or you'll be out on the street and I'll put you out there myself. Mr. Regano. He told me what Jimmy Hoffa said to tell Traficante. He said, we're running out of time. No more fucking around. I know. If I'm needed... Sure. Either Miami or here. Right. Morales is breathing down everyone's neck. I can't do that. I think you're talking about leaving the building windows open. That's all that's needed because the turn is sharp. I understand. Yes, sir. They're all here with me right now. Yes, that's what I wanted to check. I will tell him, Frank. We'll check back at 11. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye now. Yes, said Moynihan. Mr. McWillie needs to know I'll be in Vegas on the 22nd, right? Qantas moved up to Moynihan. I.D. 
You need to call Sturgis about the Floridian. Moynihan nodded, and both men walked across the cement. We're taking a little trip. Where? You ask a lot of questions, Kincaid. It's my nature, Moynihan. Moynihan stopped and adjusted his tie. You don't know how much danger you're in. You're a liability, and Kincaid, when you're too big a liability, you'll end up dead. Moynihan drove them into a suburban neighborhood, and after sunset, pulled into a tracked house driveway. Check the yard, Connors, he ordered. You two are about to meet with a well-connected man, so be respectful and pay attention. He shut off the car, and Connors instantly moved around the side of the house. A few minutes later, the bald man waved them forward. Once they were fully stopped and had Moynihan's permission, they stepped onto the cement drive. Patch removed the suitcase and carried it up the walk. Moynihan motioned them through the front doorway. Seated at the table was a gray-haired man writing something in a notebook. Next to him was a tan briefcase. Here they are, John. The man nodded and finished writing. Then he stood and shook hands with Patch and Sherry. John Martino. Pleasure. Sit down. We're here for a reason, Mr. Martino. He looked up and then stared. You're here because they got you out of Chicago just in time. At 5 p.m., a group of FBI agents descended upon the Adonis restaurant. They were looking specifically for you, too. Naturally, Mr. Kane denied ever meeting you. I don't understand why they're after us. Don't act so innocent, Patch. I was locked up with your buddy Mankiewicz until after the missile crisis. Okay? You're still playing innocent. Doesn't matter. The last thing you need is to be questioned by J.M. Wave. We have a group of people who are insulated from the government. Do you understand? I think so. Bill Harvey has talked to Helms, but there's only so much Helms can do with the Kennedys running the show. Bill is persona non grata politically since the Attorney General humiliated him. Helms sent him to Italy. Why? Martino's face assumed a scary solemnity. See, during the missile crisis, Bill sent his commandos, eight of them, to Cuba from Summerland Key. A Cuban patrol boat got to them, and six of them made it back to the boat. Just as Kennedy is giving his speech about the world blowing up, Bill is attacking. So that was the end of it? No. Bill sent ten more teams in there, right when we were on the edge of World War III. The Attorney General called it a half-assed operation. He walked out of the room while Bill was giving an explanation. Bill always called him that fucker. They hated each other. You don't treat a career man like Bill Harvey as if he was some first-grade government recruit. One time, Bill sits down, takes out his gun, and spins it around until the barrel is pointed right at the Attorney General. Word has it that Bill hates Bobby's guts with a purple passion. Okay. Bobby was chief counsel on the McClellan Committee. He humiliated Sam Giancana on national TV. What did he do? Bobby said he giggled, and only little girls giggled. You don't do that to people. I know Bill Harvey will never forgive a worse humiliation. And now he's in Italy. No, not all the time. He still runs the assassination program, Patch. He brought Johnny Rosselli into the program to kill Castro. I saw him in L.A. with Mr. Rosselli. You probably did. Let me tell you something about Johnny Rosselli. Everyone thinks he's this fixer or some powerful ladies' man. You know, handsome Johnny. What do you mean, asked Patch. 
as I said, Bill brought in Johnny to get Castro. He did everything they told him to do and more. Johnny Rosellius put his life on the line for his country. And so did Bill. He lit a cigarette and leaned toward Patch. Let me tell you something about the Kennedys. They don't get it. They snuffed out Bill's career like a used cigarette. And Jesus Christ, they want to put Johnny in jail. Johnny said he was helping the government, helping the country. And that little son of a bitch is breaking my balls. Heck, back in the 50s, Bill had a GS-16 civil service rank. That's the equivalent of a brigadier general. I didn't know that. Martino nodded his head with his mouth open, as if he had already said too much. This wouldn't be happening if Joe Kennedy hadn't had a stroke on the golf course. What do you need us to do, Mr. Martino? You lay low in one of Santos' houses while he's in Miami. I know Frank Regano is putting pressure on the government to back off. Listen, the people I deal with only know one thing. What's that? How to deal with suckers. You know what a sucker is? A sucker is like that arrogant Irish son of a bitch in the White House. A sucker is someone whose biggest weakness is he thinks he's on top. And the more you make him think that, the biggest sucker he is. Phone rang and Moynihan answered. He looked at Martino and held out the phone. Martino nodded and took the red phone out of his hands. Is that right? Just talking about suckers, Frank. And now, Geraldo Lorenz falls into that category. Just make sure we have all the telephone records of his call to C.B. Lawrence in New York. No, he just moved to Tampa from Key West. He's there right where they want him to be, right. Thank you. I only wish we found those sons of bitches in Cuba. Right. Santo is out of the area. Very good. I'll get the cash to Hemming and the rest of them. Oh, and Frank, check out the Floridian one more time. I think it's a perfect location. And tell Barker to call me back now. Goodbye. Martino took Moynihan by the arm and led him onto the terrace. Sherry whispered to Patch, Roselli is the hub of the wheel. Patch gripped the thirty-eight as he listened at the bedroom door. Voices he did not recognize talked about covert operations along the Cuban coast. Several of the men were veterans of the Bay of Pigs invasion over two years ago. One actually spent time in a Havana jail. All of them were upset with President Kennedy for not having sent jets in to protect them on a beach in Cuba. The group left after 3 a.m. in loud automobiles and trucks. After a few minutes, he heard nothing. Then a new voice raged on the phone. Oh, I don't care about your big plans. I do not care who wants to join us in Cuba. Patch leaned toward the cracked open door. General, a corporal, it still has to be successful. Then you create the disruption. I am heading back to Miami. Just do my job. What? No. No, Jose. I heard Traficante say it. You don't understand. This man is in trouble. He's going to be hit. Cuban slammed down the phone. Front door creaked open and shut tightly. A car started, and the headlights soon passed over the bedroom wall. The noise of the car faded, and the night was still. Patch held the gun as he crawled in bed with Sherry, but he lay awake with his heart thumping. The entire Gulf Coast swarmed with fighting and death, and Patch had no idea where it would end. Chapter 33 3010 North Boulevard Ave, Tampa, Florida, 
Friday, September 13, 1963, 6.19 a.m. Patch awakened when Sherry nudged him. He opened his eyes to the sunlight, inching up the trees and grass outside. She smiled and he returned the smile and kissed her. No dream last night, no long dark car. She handed him a wrinkled envelope with lemon written in black ink. What's this? It was under the door. Did you open it? He asked in a low voice. She shook her head and placed the envelope in his hands. He slid his index finger under the sealed flap. Inside was a clean piece of white line paper and a note written in black ink. She leaned over his shoulders. Hello, Lemon. You are one lucky man. You were within ten minutes of being apprehended by the FBI in Chicago. You have been confined to Traficanti's Tampa residence for a week now. It's imperative that you meet me in El Paso on Friday the 20th, a week from today. Meet me at 6 a.m. outside the travel lodge, and I'll give you all the answers to what they had you doing. I have no desire to turn you in, and no one knows I'll be there. Do not be followed and destroy this note upon reading. Plotus. Patch held the note. This may be the only way out of this mess. Do we really know it's him? We destroyed the other note, but I recognize the writing. Patch, how are we going to get to El Paso? It's the least of our problems. Patch stood and stretched. Today is Friday the 13th. Oh, great. We're dead for sure, she said, falling back on the mattress. Then she covered her head with the pillow. Patch laughed and pulled her to her feet. Seems as though we've been here forever. A week is too long. They keep telling us we're being protected. Will the mysterious Mr. Pilatus double-cross us in El Paso? How did he slip that note under the door? He's like the Phantom. He needs to talk to us for sure. Patch opened the door slightly. Connors and Moynihan were outside on the terrace. He probably parked his car blocks away. What I don't understand is how he even knew we were here. He obviously has contacts in high and low places. Point is, I guess he did know we were already brought here. That's good. Why is it good, she asked and peered out the doorway. It means that he really does have information about Lee Oswald and everything else. He stepped into the bathroom and ran the hot water over the note. Then he crumpled it into a ball and flushed it down the toilet. Let's see what our boys outside are up to. They walked into the front room. Connor stood with a styrofoam cup and a honey-glazed donuts. Got good news for you, too, said Moynihan as he chewed his donut. I hope it involves coffee and donuts, said Patch. Your week's vacation is over. There'll be a black 1957 Ford in the driveway at noon. I got the word early this morning. You need to drive to the hotel in New Orleans. You get stopped, you're screwed. Who's the car registered to? You just worry about Patch Kincaid. Drive the Ford to the friggin' motel. We'll give you the address. He finished the donut without offering anything to them. Patch led her to the front door. Where are you going? We're going to step outside and dream about breakfast. He adjusted his glasses. I got my eye on you, Kincaid. Patch gently shut the door. Look, once we get to New Orleans, I want you to get your car at the airport, Sherry, and then just drive without stopping to Spokane. She ran her finger down his cheek. Let's cross that bridge when we come to it. You'd be safe there. We're not safe anywhere. I feel at least right now we're being protected by the boys. I don't believe anything anymore.
The front door opened and Moynihan peered around the corner and down the street. Then he waved him back toward the door. I don't need you two outside. Are we being held prisoner, Moynihan? We're just trying to save your ass, Kincaid. Martino just called. Tracy Barnes is on his way over here from Miami with six intelligent operatives. Hatch remembered Barnes at the training camp. Not good. Mr. Rosselli is aware of this, I can tell you that. He checked his watch. We're trying to get the car over here as soon as possible. These people, why do they have a problem with us? Powerful people, Kincaid. Now get back in the house so you don't get your head blown off. Hatch stared at him, and I have breakfast on the way. For breakfast, Moynihan, we will come back in. Patch moved the toast over the remainder of the egg yolk. Then he sipped the orange juice. We could be scheduled to be shot in 15 minutes and you'd make sure your belly was full, said Sherry. I would. He set down the orange juice glass. Barnes was at Pontchartrain. Somebody got the word to them. And all these people think I'm some kind of Cuban agent or was inside Cuba for two years. So they want to question me. Moynihan paced with the phone out on the patio. He rolled open the slider, reeled in the cord, and hung up the phone. We've got to get you out of here. We'll get the car sent afterwards. What's the matter? asked Patch as he stood. The matter is that Bonds and Shackley are top people. They're sending additional people over to Tampa. Get your suitcase and put it in the station wagon. Where are we going? What the hell do you care? You want to live? Then get your ass in the car. Schwartz Brewing Company, Tampa, Florida, Friday, September 13th, 1963, 12.45 p.m. The white warehouse had wide columns and a cubicle main building surrounded by a blue lake, palm trees, and grass-lined roads. Moynihan, his gun drawn, stood outside the driver's door while Connors sat on the hood. He leaped down when the black car approached at high speed down the warehouse road. Okay, Patch, get your stuff, yelled Moynihan in the window. Patch opened the door as a black Ford with Texas plates skidded to a stop. Patch lugged the suitcase around the Ford and threw it onto the rear seat. A paramilitary man with an automatic weapon opened the Ford's driver's side door. Dark hair flopped onto his forehead and his hazel eyes were fixed. He threw the keys to Moynihan. Moynihan made a quick catch and the soldier stood firm with his weapon raised. Another man, dark-haired with a goatee, looped the strap of an automatic weapon over his shoulder. Moynihan put his arm around Patch. His eyes looked larger behind the glasses. You have ten hours of driving if you go straight, and I'd advise you to do that. Roy and Skip will follow you out of the city, then you're on your own. The man with the goatee rocked his gun back and forth. Okay. He handed Patch a Texaco map of the Gulf. The town and country is circled on the New Orleans section. Don't get stopped. We won't, said Sherry. One more thing. What's that? asked Patch. Skip pointed his weapon toward Patch. Do you know someone named Moon? Moon? <laughs> asked Patch as he remembered Moon face down in the parking lot of the Thunderbird. You're such a smart mouth, Kincaid. There is a Dr. Moon asking questions about you. Patch had an odd tingle in his stomach. That's impossible. Alexander Moon is dead. Did I say he was dead? He asked, placing the gun barrel next to Patch's neck. 
somebody up in Washington is asking questions about you. And he said his name was Moon. Didn't sound like he was your friend. Again, Moon is dead. He's shot dead in Vegas. You can check with Mr. McWillie. We have orders to kill Moon on sight, said Roy. Good, answered Patch. I don't like you, asshole, said Skip. Moynihan stepped in. Let's get this underway. I can kill you, too, Skip said to Patch, withdrawing the gun. Okay, Patch, get the fuck out of here. He handed Patch a card with a phone number written in red ink. Call this number if you get into trouble after Roy veers off. Call him or contact Mr. Traficante. He's the guy you want on your side. Your contact at the hotel will be Tommy. He'll be waiting for you. Good luck. Skip continued to stare at him. Don't worry, Kincaid. We'll protect you, he said, and fired the gun several times into the air. He laughed as Patch got in the car with Sherry. Patch watched all three men get in a red Chevy station wagon. In the mirror, Roy started the engine. His eyes were focused as if he were awaiting a target. Skip still had the gun pointed out the window. Skip is insane, said Patch. Then he looked at Sherry. How can Moon be looking for me? Maybe it's someone just saying they're Moon. Impossible. Chapter 34 Gulf Station, Highway 90 West, Gulfport, Mississippi, Saturday, September 14, 1963, 7.30 a.m. A strong odor of gas drifted around the station's pumps. The attendant shut the hood. Patch rubbed his itchy eyes. Even though he had slept for seven hours at the Rebel Cottages, the long-term pressure had worn him down. He yawned and then slapped a $10 bill on the kid's hand. I can get you change inside. Patch nodded. In the side mirror, the white impala that had trailed them since Florida sat in the sunshine a couple of hundred yards down the highway shoulder. He could not see the tag state or a number. Is somebody parked down there? Sherry turned. I see them. Maybe that's why Moynihan said to drive straight through. We needed sleep. She checked their position on the map. According to the map, we have an hour and a half. We should be coming in from the eastern shore of Pontchartrain. The Impala driver threw a cigarette out the window. I'm going to swing around east and then back. You think that's smart? He removed the 38 from the holster. I don't want this clown following us. The attendant appeared at the window. He stared at the gun and gave the change to Patch. Your change, sir. That car at the entrance, the white Impala, is he local? Don't recognize him. Patch placed another five dollars in the kid's hand. How many guys in the car? The kid took the bill. Four guys. Then he looked back again. They look Mexican or Cuban. What about the tag? I think it's Florida. Then he looked again. Yep, it's Florida. Thanks, kid, said Patch as he started the car. Patch moved in first gear toward the highway and pretended to veer west toward New Orleans. The Impala nudged forward. Then he checked the highway, revved the engine and popped the clutch. In a wild skid, the Ford spun 180 degrees across the asphalt. The Impala stopped abruptly. One of the Cubans in a blue shirt shook his fist as he passed. Patch slowly raised the 38, but did not point it at the car. Sherry looked over her shoulder. There's some kind of bumper sticker and they've done something to mess up the numbers on the Florida plates. 
Pat shifted into third gear at 65 miles an hour. In the mirror, the Impala pulled into the gas station. One of the occupants burst out the back door and sprinted to the phone booth. Good move, Patchy, she said, kissing his cheek. Once around the bend, Patch turned right and away from the highway onto the side streets. 200 yards away, he soon paralleled the main road and passed the gas station at the end of a long, straight street. I really should have listened to Moynihan. We're lucky they didn't come in gunning for us last night. She leaned out the side window. The white car is still hanging around the station. I saw it. They're calling to get instructions. Anyone could have sent them. He swung into a residential road that stretched diagonally northwest and back to the highway. I think we'll be safe once we get to this motel. He nodded. This road will get us at least a half mile beyond that station. Patch reached the highway a half a minute later. A silver fuel truck roared by. He shot into the westbound lane. A few minutes later, he caught the truck at the straightaway. He passed it over 80 miles an hour and headed toward Pontchartrain. The Town and Country Motel, New Orleans, Louisiana, Saturday, September 14, 1963, 10.45 a.m. A young kid with no beef on his frame stood in the motel parking lot as Patch pulled into the lot. His smile was quick and engaging. You Tommy? asked Patch. That's me. He handed Patch a legal-sized white envelope. You can park right here. I'm driving now. Do we check in? Need to go into the restaurant and wait for attorney Gill. Okay, thanks, said Patch as he got out of the car and left the door open. As Sherry got out, Tommy got behind the wheel. This place is all ramped up. What do you mean, Tommy? asked Patch. Sir, you have to be very careful down here. I don't know why you two are here, but just be careful. Thanks. Tommy drove the car past Patch and around the back of the motel. Who is he? asked Sherry. Gopher, said Patch. Let's get something to eat. At the varnished wood table, Patch opened the smooth white envelope Tommy had given him in the parking lot. He appreciated the eggs and bacon after the meager meals in Tampa. P.S. You might want to check the party at David Ferry's apartment on La Fontaine Street on Monday night. Follow your man to the Mexican consulate in New Orleans during the day. I believe he's getting a tourist card from Mexico. Report to me when you meet me in El Paso. Sherry, you better look at this. He's right on our collective tail. Maybe Pilatus contacted Tommy. He placed a note in her hand. She raised her brows as she looked over the paper. Now he wants us watching Oswald. Information that he knows or wants he can't get. He sipped his coffee and looked at the yellow hotel sign under the lodge assigned for the motel. He was certain he had been at this motel before. I'm reading yesterday's paper patch, the New Orleans Times-Picayune. President Kennedy will be in Dallas on November 21st or 22nd, a political trip. Even with Johnson, Texas is a tough state to win. I would like to see Kennedy in person. What about you? Patch's eyes moved to a conversation across the restaurant. A man with dark hair cropped at the ears, clad in an apricot shirt, smiled at an older double-chin man with glasses. He was dressed in a worsted brown suit with a maroon paisley tie, and he had the type of authority the other man respected. 
I'm not sure why that would happen, said the dark-haired man. You can buy guns or a sight at Sears and Robux. That's the guy in Galveston, whispered Patch McEwen. Attorney and friend, I would advise you that the matter be dropped, Robert. Please tell your boss I wish him the best at the trial. It's been taken care of. Good. And by the way, Robert, pass this message to Jack. He's calling the curtain call. He's calling right here. Enough is enough. Limit his phone calls. I can pass that along, Mr. Gill. Keep me informed and forget about Oswald coming to your house because it was obviously a phony incident. McEwen shook Gill's hand and he exited through the rear. Gill then straightened his tie and crossed the restaurant slowly with his valise. Patch stood as he approached the table. Mr. Kincaid, I am Attorney Gill. I represent Mr. Marcello and the others. Patch pulled one of the captain's chairs up to the table. Please have a seat, Mr. Gill. Thank you. One of the waitresses came by with a fresh cup of coffee for Gill and filled Patch and Sherry's ceramic cups. Did you get the message about the white impala? David Ferry will have an answer on that very soon. Let me just say that they're aware that United States intelligence agencies are searching for you, Patch. We will get you a secondary vehicle. Your friend's car can be housed right here. Are our lives in danger? asked Sherry. We don't know what the government's internal agenda is. However, I was told that it's imperative that you continue your assignment. This comes from the very top. I'm not privy to the details of what you're doing. I understand, said Patch. Gil took a healthy sip of coffee. As you may know, Mr. Marcello owns this motel. Kindly keep Mr. Marcello's name out of any external conversations. Yes, sir. Your mail has been collected from the box. Please come downtown tomorrow morning, Sunday, to the Marquette building to get the mail. Be at my office on the 17th floor around 11 a.m. Are we safe there, Mr. Gill? asked Sherry. Well, I'm safe at the Marquette building, Miss Thomas. I'm sure you'll be safe. He pointed outside. And by the way, I believe your car is arriving from the airport. Sherry's dark eyes opened as the impella, washed and shiny with the convertible top sparkly white, turned under the motel canopy. A kid in a plaid shirt stepped out and held up the keys. Gill nodded. The kid entered the restaurant and dropped the keys at the desk. Thank you, she said. Gill stood. We wanted you to know that vehicle is undamaged. I will see both of you tomorrow. The secondary vehicle will be here later today. He shook hands with both Sherry and Patch. Then he walked up to the front desk and said something to the waitress. As he disappeared out back, the waitress hurried over to the table. She slipped the key to Patch. He handed it to Sherry. I had that key hidden magnetically under the car. And you thought this would fool these people? Guess not. Chapter 35 The Marquette Building, 150 Barone Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, Sunday, September 15, 1963, 10.57 a.m. Patch raised his arm out the window and shouted as he raced the porch 356 around the traffic. He shifted the five-speed, and the two-seater's flat-four engine revved. Like a racer, he veered right and into a parking space near the Marquette building. You've driven a car like this before, Apache. 
That was fun. You'll have to try it. I will, she said, looking up. She removed a tiny glass vial from her pocketbook and sprayed the amber liquid on her neck. Nice perfume. Honeysuckle. It's a keeper. Patch squeezed her hand and leaned toward her. I was snuggling in this car, Patchy. But then again, no one's going to catch this vehicle. Which, considering the last month and a half, that's a good thing. She opened up the glove compartment. Patch, this is registered to a Gilberto Policarpo Lopez, Tampa, Florida. Moynihan took my Chicago license. You're talking to a man with no license. Wrong, she said, handing him a square Florida license with Policarpo Lopez's name on it. This is a Tampa address. They both opened the side doors in unison. Patch stepped back from the coupe and admired the smooth, glossy black finish. The real license tags had navy blue and gray numbers. The Sunshine State, almost to Bentley. They moved together onto the sidewalk. The building's dusty facade was indented with symmetrical window blocks to the sky. A security guard in a two-tone blue uniform opened the glass doors. Patch mentioned Attorney Gill and the gray-haired man picked up the desk telephone. A mosaic mural above the elevators depicted local Indian and colonization history. The guard, still holding the phone, motioned them forward. Mr. Gill's waiting for you at the 17th floor. Thank you, said Patch. They crossed the lobby and Patch looked toward the porch. It's still there, she said, grinning. The doors opened and Tommy, carrying a bundle of mail, exited into the lobby. He smiled and nodded. Tommy, said Patch. Heard you got a Porsche. Like a race car, said Sherry. Woo! You two are lucky, he said, pointing. But be careful. You too. He nodded and started across the lobby. Patch motioned for Sherry to get inside. She hit the button for the 17th floor and then closed her eyes as she leaned against the elevator wall. Had enough? She blinked several times. Maybe. Even with all the money. Patch whispered in her ear. Maybe I can talk Rosselli into letting you get back to Spokane. She put her index finger over his mouth and smiled. That's not going to happen, but this little escapade has to end sometime. Whenever they get the information they want. In the long run, we'll have some American dollars, Patchy. The car slowed and the doors opened. He escorted her along the hallway offices. The office at the end had an open door with Gil's name in gold letters on the glass. At his large walnut desk, Gil turned as they entered the office. Ah, I see you found me. Thank you for the use of the Porsche, said Patch. Thank Mr. Traffic Conti. I believe it came through him. Gil reached to the desk behind him and picked up a half a dozen Miller envelopes. Here is your post office mail. You're welcome to use one of the side offices. Thanks. Panoramic view of the winding Mississippi glistened in the sunshine like a work of art. You have a nice office, Mr. Gill. Everyone thinks everything happens down there. And it's a wonderful vista. But they're wrong. Things happen up here. He lifted the envelopes to Patch. Feel free to ask any questions. Thanks. Patch checked the corridor, and then they walked to the third office, 1707. He pulled up a chair for Sherry and sat at one of the wide wood desks. The black phone on the blotter rang, but the third line lit up. Patch pushed the phone back and placed the manila stack on the desk. He opened the envelope with the August postmark. It was marked film money. Ten grand for the film. She looked tired and shook her head. 
he placed the box back in the envelope. I wonder just where this money is coming from. Somebody with real deep pockets. You heard David Ferry lecturing somebody in another office. When the gun is fired, there are ways to figure out exactly how the cartridges fall. Distance and direction. It's in my reference manual on high-powered rifles. I wrote the calculations in the margins. Bloke was Ferry in military fatigues, and a tough-looking man with a slightly receding hairline passed in the hallway. Ferry glanced right and then stopped. Look what the Windy City blew in. He motioned the unsmiling man into the side office. Ferry shook his hand and then looked at Sherry. Ma'am? Mr. Ferry? Hey, Patchkin K, this is my associate, Mr. Braden, Jim Braden. Braden, his face stolid, nodded at Patch. Don't use that phone. Why not? Ferry raised his fuzzy eyebrows and put the back of his hand over his mouth. I made a few calls, long distance on the phone. Oh, so you don't want to get blamed for any calls. Braden produced a guttural belly laugh. You cheap bastard, David. You aren't calling Texas, are you? Let's see, Sherry. Texas is long distance. Mr. Gill won't mind. Ferry stood with his mouth open and again Braden laughed. Who do we know in Texas? asked Patch. Jack, she answered. Don't laugh. Jack has placed so many calls to New Orleans from Texas, said Ferry. They're going to give him stock in Southern Bell. Come on, David, he's just bullshitting you, said Braden, patting him hard on the shoulder. Jack is a shithead. Then he took Patch's hand. I like you, Kincaid. Ferry turned and started out of the room. Bring your woman down the quarter, Patch. It's party time. Then he leaned back in the office and raised his index finger. No Texas calls. Braden laughed again as Ferry left. You got him, Kincaid. You got him. He smiled as Braden retreated into the corridor. Patch pulled out a single piece of yellow bond paper from the next envelope. Only one sentence was typed in the center of the sheet. Probably because of the FBI descending upon that restaurant, said Sherry. Patch found more cash in the last envelope. Oswald will be leaving New Orleans at the end of the month or in October. Once he's in Texas, you will receive mail at the Texas P.O. Box. You will track Oswald in the same manner once in Texas. This was mailed four days ago. Sherry thought before she spoke. What are we going to do about Pilatus in El Paso, Patch? Patch looked down the corridor and then stroked his chin. She raised her head. I say we go. It would appear Pilatus has information and he wants information. We can come back to New Orleans after we meet Pilatus and then follow Oswald to Texas. She pressed her lips. You just want to drive that Porsche. Damn right. Audio recording, three and a half inch reel. September 16th, 17th, 1963. This is Lemon. On a tip from Pilatus, we followed Lee Oswald on September 17th. Around 1.30 p.m., Oswald went inside the Mexican consulate in New Orleans with another man. Oswald had a passport in his hand a short time later. He gave the passport to the other man. We followed the other man. He was identified as John C. Gaudet, an editor with free office space provided by the intelligence operative Clay Shaw at the International Trade Mart in New Orleans. Oswald partied at Dave and Ferry's apartment on La Fontaine Street. In the early morning of September 17th, anti-Castro Cubans were bragging loudly how they could kill Castro. Clay Shaw was there also. 
and upset about the communists ruling Cuba. Ferry had a map of Cuba and showed where a Castro assassination team could land and travel the roads to Havana to kill Castro. Lemon out. Chapter 36 El Paso Travel Lodge, El Paso, Texas, Friday, September 20th, 1963, 4.57 a.m. They arrived fatigued in El Paso at 9 p.m. on Thursday night. Patch instructed Sherry not to be looking around for Pilatus in case they were being followed by someone else. He slept with the 38 under his pillow. At daybreak, he stood for a second on the balcony overlooking the small parking lot and the highway beyond. Just before 6 a.m., the lanky Pilatus opened the door of a yellow, two-toned fare lane across the street. He waved to the balcony once. In his blue suit, white shirt, and thin white tie, he strode like a lost antelope across the highway. He leaped the motel's retaining wall and jogged along the parked cars under the second-floor balcony. Then he signaled Patch toward a fluffy tree atop the incline at the corner of the adjacent motel. Patch slipped between the drapes as Sherry sat up. Side, the next hotel. Stay right here. I'm going downstairs. If our friends come by, tell them nothing. She nodded. Be careful, Patch. If I was careful, sweetness, you'd be back in Spokane. Patch kissed her and hurried across the rug. He easily shimmied over the rail and dropped to the pavement. Pilatus nervously shifted his weight from foot to foot in the upper parking lot. A black Minolta single-lex reflex camera hung from his neck strap. He had trimmed medium brown hair slightly receding. The scarred left side of his face, the ear reconstruction, and his asymmetrical facial alignment gave Pilatus the persona of an injured but repaired human being. He helped Patch up to the next lot. Where's your girlfriend? asked Pilatus as he led Patch across the lot. In the room, they rounded the building and Patch followed him over a larger retaining wall. Why did you bring me here? Did anyone follow you? Not that I know of. He shook his head and looked down. God damn it, Lemon. You amaze me. Why? You have no idea what's going on down here. His eyes watered and he pressed his lips. I need to get out of it. I need protection. From what? I just don't want to be hanging around Dallas. Dallas, why? Stop with the why. First of all, I've got a lot of information here I'm going to give you. In case something happens to me. The 1959 Chevy from North Carolina is from Naval Intelligence. Naval Intelligence? What do they care about us? Come on, Kincaid. You're following intelligence operations. Listen to me. The station wagon and the men were sent by Lieutenant Colonel Grover King, 902nd Military Group of Army Intelligence. We've got the whole world after us. That's about right. He sent Lieutenant Paul Granby and a crew out to find what you two are up to. They shot at us, said Patch, outside New Orleans. Pilatus stared at him. I just met with operatives in Mexico City, same place where I met Oswald last year. I've played both sides and now I need to get out of it. Mexico City is where you're going next, my friend. I take my instructions from a specific place, not from you. Oh really? Your instructions are to follow Lee Oswald. 
Ever heard of the Queen Bee? I've known him in Atsugi in Japan way back in the 50s. Why are you telling me all this? You're my ace in the hole, Lemon. I think you have a psychological problem. Gladys reached into his satchel and fingered through a small wallet. He pulled out a pristine Uniformed Services Identification and Privileges card in the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. You don't understand. Oswald works for Naval Intelligence. O&I, for Christ's sakes. Where did you learn that? Shut up. Guy Bannister, he was with the O&I in World War II. What do you want from me? Don't you see what they're doing to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee? That whole radio thing? I'm not sure. Army Intelligence has three operatives like Oswald all over the country to make the FPCC look bad. Then they try to get it all in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee in Congress. The CIA knows about the Oswald facade. James McCord launched a counterintelligence program against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. William Sullivan, the FBI Domestic Intelligence Division, and others have set up this operation while Hoover's right-hand man, Carthur DeLoach, supervises it all. Oh, that's what they do to you when they want you to become irrelevant. They did it to Oswald, Dr. Hartogs. Very good. Hartogs was government all the way. He was at Montreal's Allen Institute, where Dr. Ewan Cameron had his mess. Cameron is a very sick individual. Correct. Cameron had his sleep room in Montreal. Then he conducted LSD and mescaline experiments. So Hartogs said whatever they wanted him to say about Oswald. Exactly. Why should I listen to you? Pilatus smiled and then fully laughed. You'd better listen to me. Oswald is an odd duck. He likes the drama of being a spy. It makes him a perfect mark. So what? Growing up, his primo program was I Led Three Lives, the spy program. Look, I'm just doing a job watching him. Listen to me. This show is about a guy who descends into multi-identities, into secrecy. This isn't a TV program, Lemon. Fine, back to reality. How did that kid Tommy get your letter to us in New Orleans? I paid him 20 bucks. He's involved. They had him sitting in on all the operational meetings, right in no-name key. I know, Kincaid. I was there. Incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. They have it all recorded from the radio in New Orleans, for God's sakes. The radio guy, Butler, he's an asset, too. And then Oswald reported everything to the FBI agents in New Orleans. The overall FBI disruption program is called Pro. And Arcasia Smith and Q, along with Ferry, have convinced Oswald to get sucked into this. He meets with the agent de Bruis at the Customs House off Canal Street. It's part of Pro. What's that? Listen, Oswald is playing too many games with too many people. I was supposed to get $500 to him. Instead, this afternoon, I will mail it to my contact in Mexico City. Oswald just wrote the Socialist Party of America, saying he and his family are moving to Washington, D.C. in October. I called SAC Debris, and he told me how passive Oswald was when he was arrested in New Orleans. Oswald set the whole damn incident up. He's obviously being used. And you are obviously vague. 
Who are you to tell me how vague I can be? That's the way I want it. Look, in July, Oswald began working for Guy Bannister. I saw that with Bannister's New Orleans address on the pamphlets. Well, I have a tape recording of a conversation between Lee Oswald and me, as well as a photograph of Oswald with me in Jackson Square in New Orleans. My insurance policy. There were other anti-Castro projects, too. Oswald showed up at meetings where he got himself deeper and deeper into this. Into what? I'm not telling you, goddammit. So what is it you want from me? I will say only one thing. Oswald has gotten himself in deep. Supposedly, he's having a change of locale, Mexico City. A CIA agent, Gary Aberdeen, is bringing it all together. And Oswald is still informing to the FBI on them. The FBI knows everything. Oswald worked for the company in Dallas that did the map overlays for the U-2 flights over Cuba. So what? So what? Listen, his other job, the owner of this so-called coffee company in New Orleans, is an asset for the CIA. That man, Riley, funds Acacia Smith and the rest of the exiles. And his VP, he's a former FBI agent. And Howard Hunt controls the whole CRC. You are so naive, Lemon. Four of his co-workers were just shuffled off to NASA by the CIA. They didn't want these men to see Oswald's shenanigans while he was supposed to be working. More than this, Oswald is in the middle of something he may not be able to get out of. The lady he and his wife are with, Mrs. Payne, her husband's stepfather invented the Bell helicopter, a big Texas industrial and military supplier. And her father is a collateral intelligence contact. He worked for the OSS. Her sister is a psychologist for the CIA, and her husband is an asset. Mrs. Payne is supposedly a Quaker. Believe me, I know her garage in Irving has filing cabinets full of letters, maps, records, and index cards on pro-Castro sympathizers. How do you know all this? Pilatus looked skyward and smiled. <laughs> I know more than I'll ever tell you. Now listen to me. Kennedy promised, after the missile crisis, not to kill Castro. This is infuriated Alpha 66. What's that? The exiles. The exiles who want Castro dead, Alpha 66. You know one of them very well, Alato Duvalli. He's acquired trans receivers and rifles. This guy was in military intelligence for Batista. He's done business with Traficante ever since he was in Cuba. Someone is calling Mexico City from a New Orleans motel, saying they're Oswald. In New Orleans, I explicitly tried to warn him he was being used by forces he could not begin to understand. But he just seemed unconcerned. Warn him? This Cuba thing has shaken up everything. Bobby Kennedy pushed everyone to kill Castro and blow things up. It was incredible. And now his brother has sent out peace feelers to Castro. And the military and intelligence guys are ripshit. I want you to listen this afternoon. Kennedy is speaking at the United Nations. You ask yourself whether certain parts of the United States government will be happy about what he says. Well, I have no control over that. Oh, yes, you do. He held on to the edge of the building. How about David Ferry? Now Ferry is calling Chicago. Chicago, 
Sound familiar, Lemon? You've been there. He wanted to talk to a Jean Warren. She's friends with Lincoln Myatt, who knows your buddy, Jack Ruby. Who are these people, and why are you telling me this? Mix it all up, and what have you got? You have organized crime and the exiles enraged at Kennedy. And you have people in the intelligence agencies willing to sit back like Caligula in this orgy of hate. Never mind all that. You need to be in Laredo between 1 and 1.30 on Thursday the 26th. I don't understand. A tourist card has been issued for Lee Oswald in New Orleans. Yeah, I saw him going to the Mexico consulate to get that tourist card. Well, I was there too. The man in front of Oswald, Gaudet, was a CIA operative. Last June, Oswald was given an instant passport when his background demanded legally that he never even get a passport. Why? Because the CIA sent Oswald to Russia along with a dozen other guys. He defected and had secrets about the U-2. They held him for weeks before he was sent to Minsk. And then, the U-2 is shot down six months later. You figure it out, Einstein. He almost blew it on the radio with Stucky. He said while in Russia he was under the protection of the American government. And then he quickly changed it to say he was not under the protection. I hear you. And then he just waltzed back into the country with a Russian wife. And they illegally give him a passport. What else? <laughs> Haven't you read the papers? The vice president's man, Baker, is about to blow the whistle on LBJ. That's only part of it. I don't care. I work for money. Oh, you'll work for more than money, Lemon. On Thursday, September 26th, Continental Trailways Bus 5133 will be coming from Houston and leave Laredo for Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. Laredo, Lemon, if Oswald is not on that bus, then someone is doing the double shuffle. This is extremely important and may involve your Army intelligence buddies. What does this all mean? asked Patch. You'll figure it out. What exactly do you want me to do? Get a detailed check on the people on the bus and the manifests in Mexico from Nuevo Laredo to Monterey. See if this individual is really on the bus. You know exactly what he looks like. So you're saying Oswald is, I'm not sure what's going on with him in Mexico City. Someone at a very high level has set something in motion here, and everybody in Mexico City will try and ferret out the mole responsible. It's genius. No one will ever investigate anything, ever. What are you asking me to do? Before you leave Laredo for Mexico City, send a sealed envelope, a yes or a no, as to whether Oswald is on the Mexico bus. Send to 375163 Los Angeles, California. When you get to Mexico City, find out if he arrived there by some other means, car, plane, train, etc. Get proof when the time comes that he was or was not in Mexico City. I don't understand why you'd want this. Ann Goodpasture. Who is Ann Goodpasture? Pilatus nodded as he spoke. She's circumventing Wynne Scott, the station chief in Mexico City, because Lemon, she works for Staff D, part of ZR Rifle. Listen, that's your problem, said Patch, raising his voice. Wait, if she says the phonies in Mexico City are Oswald when they're not, that would change the game. 
You'll see if the real Oswald is in Mexico. This is a lot of information. That information will keep you alive. Keep me alive? Why is he supposed to be going to Mexico City? Pilatus again pressed his lips and removed a card from his suit coat. Here's your tourist card from Mexico. You can't risk both you and your girlfriend going to Mexico City. And here's your passport. I haven't even said I'm going to Mexico City. Oh, you will. You'll have to surrender them to the Mexican immigration upon leaving the country. A form FM-8 has been issued at the Mexican Consulate in New Orleans. Your name. You haven't answered my question. What's going on in Mexico City? You'll figure it out, Lemon. It will all take place at the Cuban and Soviet consulates. They must have thought you were a smart guy. My bet is you're working with Escalante and Castro. No, I'm not. Patch looked around the parking lot and exhaled. Where will you be? I told you, I'm taking myself out of this. Not very reassuring. Find out what's going on in Mexico and then get out. Go back to New Orleans, but remember Oswald in Mexico. Listen to me and I'll say it again. Check the Russian and Cuban embassies. Check the bus line. Even the manifest if you can see it. I'll bet my next year's salary that Oswald will never show up in Mexico. You make him sound like some kind of agent. Find the truth, Patch, and have your girlfriend find the truth back here. And one more thing. If you don't show up in Laredo, you're already after us. Platus nodded. It's not Granby. Who is it? asked Patch. Pilatus pressed his lips and shook his head. I will tell you this. He jotted something in his notebook and handed the paper to Patch. Remember this number. Code number DUP748. What the hell does that mean? It's Amshal 1's Army Intelligence number, the 902nd Military Group. He was wrong about Oswald and Phillips in Dallas. That's right. I don't trust him or the other bastards. Will they eliminate me if I don't travel to Mexico? No comment. Just do as I say. Patch grabbed Pilatus by the lapels. I don't really give a goddamn who you are or what you're doing. Don't you threaten me. Patch removed his 38 and placed it at Pilatus' temple. It's not me. It's just the way things are done, my friend. You have no idea what's happening here. Hoover does. Richard Helms and Phillips do. And Hunt sure does. Alan Dulles is gone, but he knows. They all know about Oswald's dubious identity. Even Bobby Kennedy knows about Oswald. How about telling me? In Mexico City, the Soviet and Cuban embassies are within two blocks of each other. He laughed as Patch kept the gun at his temple. <laughs> Don't you see? My operatives want a record. A record of Oswald or a fake Oswald trying to get to Russia via Cuba. Why? Pilatus laughed again and tilted his head back with the 38 flush against his temple. <laughs> and bring you into all this? You want to die? Is that it, Lemon? Why do you think I'm buying out? What else? He looked at the gun out of the corner of his eye. They're setting it up so that an important KGB contact in the Assassination Bureau supposedly meets with Oswald. Who is setting it up? You'll figure it out. That's all you need to know. 
Don't hang around Mexico too long or they'll get you. Stay in the shadows. The apple cart has already been upset. Next week, the Senate will ratify a test ban on nuclear tests. The world's a rough place, Lemon. If you can document what I'm asking and send it to L.A., you will get to the right people, and everything will unravel and save the country a lot of grief. What do you mean by that? Not important to you. Patch grabbed him again. What's the point of all this, Pilatus? This is insane! I can't detangle this. Maybe somebody else can. You get the information, Lemon. How do I know someone will kill me? You could be lying just to get me to go down there. I suggest you make that judgment. Pilatus' eyes watered, and he smiled as though he were wading through some inner pain. Then he slowly shook his head. Be at a discreet distance from the Texas State Bank late this afternoon, and you'll see what it's all about. Even though it's going to be hot as hell out there today, you and your girlfriend just pretend you're shopping. Are you apprehending somebody? No, I am not. He looked around the green foliage. I'm mailing $500 to Mexico City and a letter directly to Hoover via registered mail about all of this. Why? Ever shoot a Colt 45, Lemon? Not to my recollection. Remember the name Bob Graham. My orders from the Soviets were to kill your illustrious double, triple agent Oswald with my 45. I'm not going to follow those orders. I'm dropping out. I hope you don't get killed. As for me, I'd rather be arrested than commit murder and treason. He drifted away from the 38 like a leaf detaching from a spreading tree, landing in the water to be taken downstream. The cars flew by on the highway. Pilatus walked in the opposite direction from the travel lodge. A few hundred feet up the road, he casually crossed the highway. He would occasionally glance in a variety of directions before he returned to his two-tone fairling. Patch stared at the tourist card and passport, upset for allowing himself to get even deeper into this mess. How had Pilatus so easily obtained these documents? He wondered if Oswald had multiple missions for multiple operatives. He climbed over the retaining wall, uncertain just what he was going to do. El Paso Travel Lodge, El Paso, Texas, Friday, September 20th, 1963. He specifically told me the blue Chevy was naval intelligence and the four guys are from Army Intelligence, Lieutenant Colonel Grover King. 902nd Military Group of Army Intelligence sent Lieutenant Paul Granby and the other guys to check out what we're doing. Paul is the one with no neck. Patch pushed his fingers through his hair as he sat on the edge of the bed. I don't know. In front of a tiled background, the president, in a dark suit, spoke into two microphones. He began in a clear cadence and seriousness that caught Patch's attention. But Patch soon returned to his own thoughts of the past 12 hours. He hashed and rehashed a minutiae of details from his early morning meeting with Pilatus. Pilatus performed like an expert chess player, manipulating people and things easily. Was the trip to Mexico City merely another manipulation? Patch did not want to travel deep into Mexico. By being in proximity of the Cuban and Russian consulates, he was placing himself in great danger with the intelligence agencies. The threat of Pilatus or his minions somehow engineering his and Sherry's death prompted him to follow Pilatus' instructions.
Hatch stood when Kennedy spoke about the Tespian Treaty. Sherry sat on the bed next to Patch as Kennedy spoke. And for the first time in 17 years of effort, a specific step has been taken to limit the nuclear arms race. I refer, of course, to the treaty to ban nuclear tests in the atmosphere, outer space, and underwater, concluded by the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and already signed by nearly 100 countries. It has been hailed by people the world over who are thankful to be free from the fears of nuclear fallout. And I am confident that on next Tuesday at 10.30 o'clock in the morning, it will receive the overwhelming endorsement of the Senate of the United States. This is a market change, said Patch. This is the speech Pilatus wanted you to watch, Patch. Kennedy is a remarkable speaker. He paused and exhaled. She held his forearm. You're feeling the pressure. He nodded. I've come to the conclusion that I have to go to Mexico. I know that. We have to take this death threat seriously. You should call Rosselli. Pilatus has too many handlers, Sherry. I don't even know if Johnny Rosselli could keep us safe. I keep thinking of Oswald trying to buy those guns outside of Galveston. That's why we were instructed to stay back. Listen to Kennedy, Patch. Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation, for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. Space offers no problems of sovereignty. By resolution of this assembly, the members of the United Nations have forsworn any claim to territorial rights in outer space or on celestial bodies and declared that international law and the United Nations Charter will apply. Why, therefore, should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Cooperation? That will never happen, said Patch. You can't trust the Russians. Into new walls. Texas State Bank, El Paso, Texas, Friday, September 20th, 1963, 4.17 p.m. They moved along the storefronts in the late afternoon heat. Following Pilatus' instructions, they stopped about 100 yards diagonal from the Texas State Bank, a stone fortress with Roman arch windows. Patch scanned the street for Pilatus. Just what is he planning, Patch? I'm not sure. Pilatus's yellow and cream fair lane turned into an alley near the bank. There's the car. Let's see what he's up to before we go talk to him. He could be double-crossing you, Patch. Who knows? I would say whatever he's doing, he's planned it very well. It's one thing getting an envelope full of money. It's another sticking your neck out in Mexico under a death threat. Patch wiped his brow in the intense heat. He opened his eyes wide when Pilatus, still in his blue suit, removed a gun from the trunk and stuffed it in his belt. Oh, God, what now, she asked. Pilatus worked the inside of the trunk for close to a minute and then sealed the envelope. Then he started down the street toward the post office, another gray stone building with huge columns and an American flag above. 
He did say he was going to mail a letter to J. Edgar Hoover and money to Mexico City. Plattis entered the post office and Sherry held Patch's arm. Do you really think he's serious about Laredo and Mexico? Do I want to take the chance, sweetness? You'll have to follow the P.O. Box instructions in Dallas while I'm gone. As you stay on our friend's tail. Oswald, right. What will I tell them when you're gone? Asked Sharon. Well, we've got some time before I leave. We'll head back to New Orleans and figure all that out. You just make sure you take that 38 with you. Here comes Pilatus. Patch turned his head. Pilatus looked behind him as he quickly moved down the sidewalk. Patch took Sherry's hand and they continued along the store windows. This time Pilatus entered the bank under two molded eagles. Patch pulled Sherry back. He's crazy. What's he doing? When he comes out, I'm going to tell him I'm not going to Laredo. and Let's see what he says. Two shots echoed out the door from inside the bank. Gunfire, exclaimed Sherry. Pilatus soon appeared at the door, but he veered toward the street corner, hesitated, and walked directly to the fair lane in the alley. Two people, probably bank employees, ran to the front doorway. Pilatus started the fair lane, but he just sat in stillness and stared out the windshield. His car rolled forward toward the street. One of the cars slowed on Main Street, and the driver motioned for Pilatus to enter the traffic flow. Patch guided Sherry into an alcove near the alley. A cop appeared and raised his gun as he rushed the fair lane. Pilatus lifted up his hands and spoke clearly. I guess you've got me. I surrender. In a few seconds, the cop had Pilatus out of the car and in handcuffs. The cop forced Pilatus inside the bank. Looks like a bank robbery or an attempted bank robbery. Let's get out of here. He's gotten himself arrested. We don't need to be in the middle of this. I apologize for the Pilatus dumping of information and intel in Chapter 36. These extraordinary connections set the stage not definitively for the drama surrounding the Kennedy assassination. Richard K. Snago really did enter the bank in El Paso and fire a shot. Once within the federal system, Miguel was shielded in a certain way from the November events in Dallas. Did J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, receive a letter from Nagel outlining the parameters of the plot? Was Nagel working for the Russians and the CIA? Did Nagel in the 50s follow Oswald, a man on the CIA payroll in Japan? This is the wasteland, with apologies to T.S. Eliot, surrounding the central plot. It is very easy to descend the rabbit warren. Warning. Don't become fixated on little things unless they are meaningful to the entire plot. Take these things in context as a part of the plot when proven. I'm getting tired of just thinking about it. Everyone have a wonderful night in real time, but remember what preceded you in your real time. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. My books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.